Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I would invite you in this morning to turn to the book of Exodus. In your copies of the scripture, Exodus, we will be in chapter 7 this morning. In a moment, we'll read verses 8 through 13. There's always a sense of fear and intrepidation as I come back from vacation because there's always that little thought in my head that asks, can you do it again? (laughs) Maybe it's like riding a bicycle, you never forget, I don't know, but it's good to be back to be able to go to God's Word together, to hear from God's Word, and to rejoice in God's Word together. Reminded of what Randy read for us at the beginning uh, from the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is preaching against the false prophets, and he says, is not my word like fire? Like a hammer breaks hearts into pieces. Is that what you know God's word to be? Like a fire, like a hammer breaks things in pieces. What is it in your life that the word of God has done that too? I hope you would say, like I would say, that it's been my heart. It's been my heart that has been burned by God's word and his fire, and it's my heart that's been broken into pieces by his word, and that that is a good thing. (laughs) It's good that my heart has been broken to pieces. Because that is what I needed. Because then that's what makes me whole. So, with that being the truth, wouldn't we want to go to God's word this morning? May it be as a fire and as a hammer in our lives. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as I read Exodus 7, beginning in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. 
For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we sang these words, And though this world with devils filled. Sometimes we might sing such lines without thinking much about them. So let's go back to that line for a moment that we sung. If you sang that line, do you believe that it speaks truth? We want to sing the truth, the truth that comes from God's Word. In fact, when we come together, that's what we want to do the whole time. We want to read God's truth, the Word. We want to sing God's truth, the Word. We want to pray God's truth, the Word. We want to see it made visible, even through the Lord's Supper and Communion. So if we want to sing truth, is that line true? And is it true from God's word? Is it true that the world is filled with devils? I mean, is that something that we would believe today? We live in the 21st century. We are modern people. Would we say things like that? If you'd said that to your neighbor, how would your neighbor look at you? Before we answer that question, if it's true that the world is filled with devils, let us begin with another fundamental question, or another fundamental truth. The world in which we live is broken. We know that. We see that every day. It's a fallen world that's been marred by sin. We are aware that there is such a thing as evil in this world. There are evil actions that have taken place throughout the course of human history, atrocities that are unthinkable, even sometimes almost unspeakable, evils that utterly horrify and would plunge our world only into more and more darkness. We could recount acts of murder, rape, Racism, terrorism, and genocide. One author even recounts major evil events in the last 75 years. The rape of Nanking, Auschwitz, the Russian, the Russian gulags, Cambodia's killing fields, the Rwandan genocide. And that's just the last 75 years. And certainly those aren't the only evils that have happened in the last 75 years. We know that there is evil in our world. Where there is evil, there is brokenness, there is depravity, there is darkness, and there is disorder. The evil in our world even comes to us with a disordering of God's design. And that happens when evil is called good, when wrong is called right, when lies parade themselves as truth, when darkness is thought to be light. When we see this in our world, it is not only to be recognized as evil, but we might say it is chaotic evil. 
Such evil is meant to be utterly confusing, evil that makes your head spin, evil that seeks to turn everything you know upon its head. Chaotic evil is evil that is based on lawlessness. Chaotic evil is against God, against God's ways, against God's word, against God's Christ, against God's holiness, and against God's truth. Does it ever appear that the chaotic evil seems to be growing? Seems to be getting worse? That the darkness seems to be becoming darker? We know that behind such chaotic evil is one that Martin Luther calls the Prince of Darkness. Or as the Apostle Paul calls him in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air. And there are those who follow the prince of the power of the air. There are those who follow the devil, Satan himself. And he is the one who promotes evil. He promotes chaotic evil in our world. And if it is the case that this one, Satan, promotes chaotic evil, it is true then that this world can be filled with devils. Ephesians 6 reminds us that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual authorities and rulers. We fight against the demonic realm. Even if we go to 1 John, 1 John says that many antichrists have already come. Think about when John was writing that, back in about 90 A.D. He was saying then, many antichrists have already come. And so this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, undo Christians. Will the chaotic evil win? Will the prince of darkness win? Will Satan win? Or maybe in the context of our verses this morning, will the dragon win? And sometimes, as we sit here today, it might be easy to simply say, no, we know that he will never win, but I wonder, I wonder, Throughout the week, do you ever doubt? Do you ever question? With everything that you know to be true and right being turned upside down, do you ever think, I do not know how all of this chaotic evil will be overcome because it appears to be prevailing? It appears to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It appears to be unstoppable. So in those secret moments, are we tempted to doubt? Are we tempted to worry or question? That's why we need Texts like Exodus 7, 8 through 13. We need texts like these that continue to point us to the gospel. Texts of hope, texts of great assurance for the believer in Christ Jesus. And before we dive into our outline this morning, I want to highlight a word that I will be using and tell you why I am using this word. It's a word that is not apparent in many English translations, and it is the word dragon. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 4, 3, God told Moses to throw his staff on the ground, and it says there that it became a serpent. So that word there in chapter 4 generally means snake, although it can be used synonymously with other reptiles. The word, however, For serpent here in Exodus 7 is different. It's a word 
that designates a reptile who is particularly ferocious or terrifying. This is not your garden variety snake. It's much, much more. So it is a ferocious, terrifying reptile. It is often used to evoke the threat even of chaos in God's word, the undoing of God's creation. And if you were to look at Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was often seen as this great serpent or reptile. Such a symbol was used to represent his divinity, his sovereignty, and his power. You can even see this on the headdresses of many pharaohs. There it was, a cobra on the front of their headdress. They were represented by this great and terrifying serpent. And so when we have this account of Aaron throwing down his staff and it becoming a horrifying reptile, I believe the correlation is with Pharaoh himself. He is represented by the image of the reptile, and the correlation would have been understood by all who saw what was happening. But I have chosen the word dragon to represent Pharaoh, and the one who is behind Pharaoh, who I believe to be Satan. He is represented by a snake and a dragon in the Bible, and I have chosen the word dragon because also of what God's word says in Ezekiel 29.3. It says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Did you hear it there, what God said? God says, I'm speaking to you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and how does he describe him? The great dragon. You know that word right there in Ezekiel 29.3 is the same word that is used by Moses in Exodus 7 when it says serpent. Also, if we were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the word dragon here in Exodus 7 for how they interpret God's word. So what is happening here in Exodus 7, 8 through 13? As we think about this idea of dragon that we see over and over again with this sign that is performed, what's happening in Exodus 7, 7 is that we are being prepared for a theological battle. Not a battle between nations, not a political battle, not a social battle. This is a theological battle battle, a battle between Yahweh, the one true and living God, and Pharaoh, the great dragon who has set himself up as God, who thinks of himself to be the divine image of God. The stakes are incredibly high. They're playing for keeps. They're not fighting for an ideology they're not fighting for a piece of land. They're fighting to show who really is God. We see and understand many battles going on in our world and in our culture today. As we see these battles raging on, it will have devastating consequences if we fail to recognize that these battles are theological battles and spiritual battles that are raging all around us. Let us not be distracted and think that these battles that are raging are merely ideological or merely a matter of perspective. These are spiritual battles that have spiritual consequences. And the truth of God's word is on the line. Who is the true king? Who is the one who is sovereign? Who is the one who will rule? Exodus 7, 8 through 13 is an event that is a microcosm of what we are about to see played out in what we often call the ten plagues of Egypt. It's a microcosm of, of, of all of these plagues that are about to take place. 
a snapshot of what God will do in his plan of redemption for his people in moving them towards the goal of new creation. But a challenge has been laid down in our verses. Who is the one with all of the power? Is it God or is it the dragon? And Exodus 7 gives us a clear picture of the power of God. Do you believe that God is powerful? How powerful? How powerful is God? Is he all-powerful? Does he have power over everything? How we desperately need the power of God in our lives. Because we know and we see the other power that is out there in this world, and we know that it is very real power, Sometimes it can look like a very great power, but we know that God is more powerful, all-powerful. And so these verses tell us about the power of God. So in your outline there, you can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. But number one, what does Exodus 7, 8-13 through 13 tell us about the power of God? Well, first it tells us the dragon will seek to discredit the power of God. The dragon will seek to discredit the power of God. Verse 8 begins with the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to Moses and Aaron. It's the Lord informing Moses and Aaron about what is to happen. Then the Lord said to Moses and to and Aaron. This is a, a prediction. He's saying, this is what's going to happen, Moses and Aaron. When you go to Pharaoh, here is what Pharaoh is going to say. It shows us decisively that the Lord is in control of this situation. He already knows what's going to happen. He tells Moses and Aaron what will come to pass. And it will all happen for a purpose and for a reason. And I wonder if this small verse right here, verse 8. All verse 8 says is, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. That's it. That's verse 8. But I wonder if that would tell us something about if we doubt when we go into spiritual battle. If we doubt when we go into spiritual battle, is it because we have forgotten who is in control? And if we have forgotten who is in control, is it because we've forgotten what God's word says. And so Moses and Aaron need to hear God's word first. They need to hear from God. And God tells them what Pharaoh will say. This is a challenge that Moses or that, that Pharaoh will pose to try to discredit the power of God. So how does Pharaoh, this dragon, how does he seek to discredit the power of God? Well, what does he say? Prove yourselves. Moses and Aaron, prove it. What does Pharaoh demand? He demands a miracle or a sign. Do something miraculous. Here's your chance to showcase your power or to showcase the power of Yahweh. Why was Pharaoh going to ask this question? Was he going to ask it with sincerity? Was he asking it because he was going to accept the answer? Did he ask wanting to know the truth? No, he was asking because he wanted to expose Moses and Aaron for the charlatans that they were. He thought they were hustlers. Men with no power, no authority, no God worth worshiping. He wanted to expose them for the frauds he believed them to be. And in fact, we see this action of Pharaoh repeated again and again in the scriptures, don't we? Those who demand a sign are not 
those who really want a sign that they can believe. They demand a sign because they are opposed to God. They demand a sign because they want to remain in their unbelief. They demand a sign because they are not ready to accept what God would say, but rather they are intent on rejecting what God has to say. Matthew 16, 4, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. John 6.30, Jesus said, or, or the people said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That was just after Jesus had fed 5,000 people. 1 Corinthians, which Randy read today, chapter 1, 22 and 23, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here it is in the New Testament. These people are given more than a sign. They are given the one to whom all of the signs point. Do you realize all of the signs that we have in God's word, they're all pointing towards Jesus Christ himself. These are people here in the New Testament, they would have seen his life, they would have seen his death, his resurrection. They still refuse to believe. These people are fulfilling what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. These people heard, but they would not understand. They saw, but they did not perceive. Pharaoh would get a sign. He would see a miracle performed before his eyes. Yet he would seek to discredit the power of God. And he would soon find out that he would not be able to discredit it. God's power would be shown to be the true power. And let us remember from this passage that proof of God, of his existence, proof of Christ, never saves anyone. I was thinking about this, and I thought, now I know you're never supposed to say never, but I have never heard someone say they came to Christ because God had proved himself to them. I've never heard someone say, you know, someone just gave me all of the proof that I needed, and the proof was enough, and that was it. I've never heard anybody say that. Do you know what, what I hear people say? And this is, I think, again, always, I always hear people say, when they talk about their conversion, if it's true conversion, they say something like this. I was convicted of my sin. I saw myself to be a sinner before God. God opened my eyes to the truth of who I was. In fact, it was God proving to me that I was a sinner and that I needed a savior and that then I came to him. God saves sinners. We can offer all of the proofs in the world. We can have an airtight argument. We can speak with great sincerity and passion. We can say everything just right, but all of the proofs that we would offer to anyone about God or about Jesus Christ ultimately never will save them. Only God can soften their hearts. Only God can break their hearts. Only God can convict them of their sin. And only God can bring them to himself. How great is the power of God, so great that the power of God can save sinners. So, Christian, when you speak to other people about Jesus Christ, do not discredit the power of God. 
You cannot save them, but God can. They might respond like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. He'd seen a great miracle, a sign. Didn't matter. Pharaoh's heart and everyone's heart is in the hand of God. And so we trust that his power is perfect. Number two, the dragon will try to duplicate the power of God. The dragon will try to duplicate the power of God. God says to Aaron and Moses, Pharaoh is going to say this to you. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. So here's what you do. Aaron, do a miracle. <laughs> Throw your staff on the ground and it will become a serpent or a dragon. Some commentators say this is an act of taunting. Pharaoh you think you are so big and so great, God can make another one of you out of a piece of wood. Pharaoh would get the idea that his sovereignty was being assaulted. Who would dare do such a thing in the presence of Pharaoh? Yahweh would dare to do such a thing. And Pharaoh's response is to try to beat Yahweh at his own game. Game, as if to say, anything that you can do, Yahweh, I can do better. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, Pharaoh has this miracle, this sign going on right before his very eyes. Him and his servants are seen. Aaron, do this action. And so Pharaoh now summons his wise men, his sorcerers, these men that were called the magicians of Egypt, and they duplicate the miracle. It says that they were able to accomplish this by their secret arts. The question becomes, how were these magicians able to do the same miracle? Well, some might suggest that they were able to do it through natural means. That is, a trick of the eye and illusion. Something that has a reasonable explanation. I believe it was probably done as some supernatural act. The idea of secret arts, as stated here, could very likely be a sign that these were occult-like practices that were taking place. So it could be demonic forces behind the magicians who were able to duplicate and copy the miracle. Remember, Satan does have power. It is limited power, but it is very real power. But at the same time, it turns out to be counterfeit power. It's not like the power of God. So trying to duplicate the power of God, Pharaoh shows that he is deceived by his own ignorance. He's unwilling to accept his own weakness. He's unwilling to accept the fact that he is not as powerful as Yahweh. He is deceived by his own ignorance. And so he refuses to acknowledge the power of God and thinks he can match or copy the power of God. The dragon tries to duplicate the power of God and not only shows himself to be deceived, but why does he do that? To try to deceive other people as well. In fact, turn with me for a moment to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, these are the first four verses. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast 
and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? You see what's happening there? You see that there is this beast, this figure, and behind this beast is this dragon, right? And the dragon, again, that's Satan, has given the beast all of this power and all this authority, right? Even this throne. And what's the description there of verse 3? On the beast's head, there was like a mortal wound. But what had happened? That mortal wound had been healed. And I believe what that's demonstrating is that there is an imitation, a mimicking, trying to be like Christ. Christ was the one who died on the cross, but who rose again from the dead. Now here is this beast who is trying to be impressive and show that he has this mortal wound, but that this wound was healed. But what? This is a counterfeit power. This is a counterfeit God. This is a counterfeit beast, this one that the dragon is controlling. This is not God. This is not God's power. Yet, not only is the beast deceived, but all those who follow the beast are deceived as well because now they're beginning to worship the dragon and worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? What are people supposed to be saying? They're supposed to be saying, who is like the Lord our God? Who can fight against him? Yet this duplication of God's power, this mimicking, this imitation has deceived many people. And what's at stake? What is at stake with this deception that happens through duplication? Worship is at stake. Who you worship. There's only two options in Revelation. Either you worship the dragon and all those who follow him or who who work for him, or you worship God. That's it. You either worship Satan or you worship God. It makes me think, when when we say that, when we, we, we talk about that, that is a worship war that is raging in our world. You know, that, that term, worship wars, has come into our vocabulary in the last 60, 70 years. You know what those worship wars are? Should we sing traditional hymns? Should we sing contemporary songs? And all of the headbutting that goes on about that. Those are what often are referred to as the worship wars. Let me tell you, let's stop spending time on those worship wars and get back to the real worship war of people worshiping God and God alone. That's what matters at the end of the day. People are being deceived, and we want to tell them the truth. We want to tell them the truth of God's power. And so, we would look no further than to the power we see from God and from His work of redemption. Do not be deceived by the dragon when he tries to duplicate the power of God. It's false. It's a false and counterfeit power. It's not the power of God. And do not give more credence to this counterfeit power. It appears to be strong. It appears to be powerful. It appears to be unstoppable. And let's just remember here for a moment as we go back to Exodus 7. Aaron cast his staff on the ground. It becomes a dragon. The magicians cast their staffs on the ground. They become dragons. Fill in the picture. How many dragons on Aaron's side? One. How many dragons on Pharaoh's side? More than one. At least two. We don't know how many specifically. Question is, who's going to win? 
seems like a no-brainer. I probably would want more than one dragon if I had the option of having dragons. If we're in a dragon fight, two dragons is better than one. Brings us to three, point three. The dragon will ultimately be destroyed by the power of God. The dragon will ultimately be destroyed by the power of God. We've now come to the climax of the event, and in verse 12, we see how it all ends. Aaron's staff swallows up all of the Egyptian magicians' staffs. Aaron's staff wins. Aaron's dragon wins. And a message is being conveyed through this action. Pharaoh's divinity, his sovereignty, the great power he believes himself to have is completely and utterly denounced and rejected outright. Pharaoh, you are not a powerful dragon. You are not the almighty dragon that you think you are. No, king of Egypt, you are a weak dragon. One commentator says this, God was sending a strong message to Pharaoh. Egypt thinks Pharaoh is a mighty immortal serpent, but God can easily swallow him up. Pharaoh is no match for the God of Israel. He'll be gobbled up and eaten. And with such a message, you would think that Pharaoh would listen, but his heart remained hard. His heart was a malfunctioning heart, a heart that would not budge, a heavy heart that would not move, an unyielding heart in every way. It remained entrenched in unbelief, it would not heed what God had said. It would not come under the authority of God's word. It stayed in rebellion against Yahweh. A miracle, a sign, doesn't soften hearts. Yet here is the great warning for the dragon. The dragon will be swallowed up. Remember I said that this sign is a microcosm of what will take place in the ten plagues? It's a foreshadowing, actually, of the end. How could I make such a claim? Well, let's look at Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verses 11 and 12. Maybe we even hear a Revelation 13 ringing in our ears. Exodus 15, 11, and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth, what? The earth swallowed them up. It's the same word. That, that word swallowed them up, or swallowed them, in verse 12, the same word that's used in Exodus 7, 12. And it's the only two times that that word is used in the whole of the book of Exodus. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses. What are they singing about? They're singing about when Pharaoh's army was swallowed up by the earth in the sea. Here they were being swallowed up by the chaotic waters of the sea exactly as it had been depicted by the Lord when Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh and Aaron's staff swallowed up the magician's staffs. Pharaoh and his servants and his magicians had been warned. They'd been put on notice, but instead they resisted, they rebelled, and they were destroyed. God's power reigns supreme. And so at the moment of questioning, at the moment of doubt, at the moment when worry might lapse our thinking and we wonder if God's redemption plan is in jeopardy, we need verses like these to be reminded again of God's power over the dragon. God has more power and is all-powerful and his power is even over Satan. 
And that, and that is where, if there's any question in our minds, it should lead us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us go back to the cross and look again where Christ, our Savior, died for our sin. Let us go back to the empty tomb where it is hailed that Christ now is alive forevermore as the resurrected Lord. This is where we see the power of God on display finally and fully so that the defeat of the dragon is completely sure and our victory is secured. God is so powerful that it is through the death and resurrection of his own son that he defeats the power of sin, the power of Satan, and the power of death itself. One more verse, maybe, one more verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Turn there if you would, just so you can see it. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. I'm going to start with that quote there. Death is what? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The dragon will be swallowed up. Even death itself will be swallowed up in victory. In fact, Paul here is borrowing this imagery from the Exodus. He's saying, remember just how certain it was that Pharaoh and his army would be swallowed up by the sea? Remember how certain it is that the dragon is going to be swallowed up it's so certain that here now Paul applies it to death. It's even certain that death is going to be swallowed up. Death won't win. Death does not have any power. In fact, Christ is the one who has conquered death and given us the victory. Why doubt? Why question? If the chaotic evil seems to be powerful, if it seems to be growing, would we ever go back and say, no, the dragon will not win. No, Satan will not win. No, evil will not win. No, death will not win. I know in whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep me until that day when he either comes again or calls me home. Whatever powers are out there in the world, maybe we could even laugh at them now. I'm reminded, I said maybe one more verse. How about one more? First Peter 5. First Peter 5. Verse 8. First Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are be experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That word devour is the same word as swallowed up it can mean swallowed up. It can mean devoured. It can mean drown. And so could it be that as Peter is warning us, there is real danger. Satan is roaring like a, a lion on the earth seeking people whom he can devour, whom he can swallow up. That maybe there is a sense of irony in our minds as we bring all of this imagery from the Exodus now to this verse and we say, ah yes, but guess what? Satan will try to devour, but ultimately he will be devoured. He will be swallowed up. He will come to an end. Therefore, I can resist him, firm in my faith. 
And though this world with, devil fill, with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that little word? Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him, that is Satan, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That one little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Father, it's sometimes easy to be afraid and scared. We see evil in this world. We see this world with devil filled, with devils filled, and we wonder how will it ever be defeated? How will it ever be overcome? But as our verses have taught us today, the dragon will be swallowed up and defeated. One day thrown into the lake of fire. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And help us look to your power Oh, Lord, the power that you've displayed upon the cross. And Father, we pray if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today they would turn from their sin, turn from following the prince of the power of the air, turn from being a son of disobedience, and turn in repentance and faith to Christ. And then may the assurance of victory in Jesus be upon them. And Father, we pray that you would keep us, those who follow you, those who are your disciples, help us to resist the devil, firm in the faith, as we continue to journey through this world, whether we experience trials, tribulations, persecutions, suffering through it all, may we cling to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate one who will triumph over the ser serpent, over the dragon, the one whose heel is bruised, but ultimately who will crush the head of the serpent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.